Who's there? Autograph on this body. What do you want, buddy? Autograph. All right, you two. All right. Break it up. You can get your autographs after the show. Oh, they're a ripe lot of Charlies, they are. Oh, 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 the vapor, the vapor. You see what I mean? Well, now, ladies and gentlemen, tonight at 8.30 sees the return of the goon show. There's not much I can tell you about the story of the first episode, except to say that a nude Welshman is holding a rice pudding in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and an atom bomb will be dropped on him. What will be the effect? Well, your guess is as good as mine. Anyhow, the story is called The Sahara Desert Statue, which doesn't mean a thing, for after all, it's all in the mind. You know. Morning. Good morning. Just before I introduce this week's guest, just a word about last week's show, which is the episode where I interviewed The Scaffold. I had a really great response from listeners to that episode. Lots of you loved it. I did have a handful, a very small handful, let's say one, two, three at the most, who contacted me, um, said it was a great show, but were a little bit surprised that it was so thin in terms of goon content, if you like. But, you know, the, 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 there are times on this podcast where I am going to be talking to uh, legends of comedy or people that, you know, work within comedy or write about comedy, where sometimes, you know, it's not going to be so goon heavy and the content will be more varied. And, and just on that, just wanted to run something past everybody, because I've been thinking for a little while about starting uh, next year, perhaps starting something uh, which would run in tandem with GoonPod, which would not affect uh, GoonPod and have no relation to GoonPod other than it would be the same sort of format. But I was thinking of doing maybe as bonus episodes, some classic British films, uh, maybe one episode a month, something like that. And, you know, it would be the same, as I say, same sort of format, same sort of style as I do with GoonPod. And it would be, you know, films just off the top of my head, like... Uh, let's see, Kind Hearts and Coronets, Carry On at Your Convenience, which of course is the best Carry On film, by the way. Uh, The Runaway Bus with Frankie Howard, maybe Alpha Papa, the Alan Partridge movie, and Wilt with uh, Mel Smith and Griff Rhys-Jones. So, you know, I'm just plucking those out of the air, but it could be that you know, this is something that I start next year, maybe as a standalone podcast or maybe as a bonus podcast to go along with, with GoonPod. I'm not quite sure how or if it will happen, um, but I would really appreciate any comments, any thoughts, anything at all from anyone listening. Um, let me know if it's something that you would be interested in hearing or whether it's something that, you know, it would be a, a waste of time because I'm not going to embark on something if no one wants to listen to it, obviously. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, my guest this week is returning, and it is our friend from across the pond. It is Sean Gaffney. Um, and Sean and I were talking about uh, uh, not one of the better-known Goon shows, but uh, still a great one. I hope you enjoy that. And by the way, any EastEnders fans out there, I was right. I just I wrote Sean's name down before, Sean Gaffney. And I just realized, actually, he's one letter away from being Dean Gaffney. You know, surely one of Britain's finest thespians. Um, I'm sure he won't know what the hell I'm talking about. But anyway, on with the show. Uh, Sean, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be back. Okay, so you joined me previously to talk about the Goon Show episode 1985. 
yes. uh, which is a which is a, a barnstorming episode of the goon show if I, may, if I may say so and and the podcast was pretty good as well and uh you and i agreed that you would return at some point which is today and i think originally we were going to talk about six charlies in search of an author which i think is your favorite goon show is that right i have goon shows that are my favorites and i have goon shows that i like to analyze right okay 1985 is is one of the latter as is six charlies in search of an author because i I did drama in college, mm. and so a, a goon show that revolves around the uh, the Pirandello play, which I had also studied, yeah. um, mm. obviously appealed. Sure, sure. But in the end, we decided to do uh, today's episode, which is the Sahara Desert statue. Perhaps that's your favorite one. Is that is it, that right? It is. It's not. I. It's not a typical. I don't think it would be anyone else's favorite, and I'm not sure it's the best i'm not saying it's the best or the funniest goon show but it is my emotional support goon show when i am and when i am feeling down or distracted and i am in need of a goon show i inevitably end up queuing this one up Mm -hmm. yeah it's i don't remember when i first heard it i know that uh, it came out um originally officially in 2002 um along with the fear of wages and the the nadger plague on that uh collection yep but i think that i i I may have heard uh the pick of the goons version before just um you know this was late 90s you pick up things on the net that's how it worked Mm. Mm -hmm. and um i because the one thing that's always struck me about the sahara desert statue is every time you hear it there's more of it because you might start with the pick of the goons version which is as always about 27 minutes long and then we got the version that came out on the fear of wages cd which uh was your standard goon show length about 30 minutes and then we got the version on the compendium which was about like 32 minutes yeah which had even more material added Mm -hmm. plus there's a uh, trailer which uh was recorded for these for series nine in general Plus, there's 20 minutes of rehearsal tape. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, I remember this first hearing this episode. It would have been late 80s, probably early, very early 90s. So I would I've told the story so many times. People are bored. Um, but I used to get up very early on a Saturday morning uh, when I was um, 14, 15 and uh, tape off the radio, the Goon Show that was would be repeated it, they would they would play uh, the national radio station would play a goon show um i think it was either five or i think it was five o'clock in the morning may have even been four o'clock in the morning i think five o'clock they play an episode and then three o'clock saturday afternoon they play a different episode not quite sure why they did that but that was that was what they would do so very often uh, certainly in the early days i was i was recording two different goon shows every week which was fantastic you know um but the problem was it was a was it an AM station, I think. So the quality was never very good. You know, yeah. It wasn't very good. Then probably, I don't know, maybe about 18 months, two years after I'd started recording them, if that, um, I discovered that the national radio program was, was you, could, you could actually, there was a channel on the TV that, was playing the national radio station, if that oh, made, fantastic. made sense. And I worked out a way, I managed to get a lead or a cable that could plug into my recorder, tape recorder, and into the back of the TV or the video, which was hooked up to the TV. Anyway, I was able to record the audio straight off the TV. And it, it wasn't, it was a lot, it was a, a definite step up from taping directly off the radio and I think that this was the first I seem to remember this was the first episode that I recorded in that fashion and I remember being delighted because it was it was you know it was crisp well not crystal clear but it was it was a lot there was a lot more clarity to it it was crisper if you like you know yes no I get it kids these days don't understand the old days of having your cassette tape suddenly go and you have to take a pencil and yes reel it in (laughs) yeah so this episode is the first program first episode of series nine um and it it goes out uh 3rd of november 1958 now i just wanted to talk about um the lead up to the beginning of series nine um because because quite a bit has happened i think 
Indeed. Series eight was difficult, shall we say. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, as you know, I am planning, on, and I'm not going to give anything away here, but I'm planning on um, at, towards the end of the year, if not at the end of the year, going to do a special show, which I hope you will uh, be able to um, assist me with, which will be counting down the listeners' top 20 goon shows. And by the way, anyone listening to this who hasn't DM'd me on Twitter or um, uh, messaged me on Facebook or emailed me, and I'll give out the email address at the end, uh, with your favourite goon show or goon shows, um, please do so. Um, but I have... I, I do have a working list, if you like, at the moment, which is pretty, I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good spread of goon shows that people would consider their favourites, okay? Uh, again, I'm not going to give too much away here. Well, I'm not going to give anything away, but let's put it this way. Series 8 shows are a bit thin on the ground, okay, in that list. I can imagine. Um, and, and, of course, the, yeah. Part of the problem with Series Eight was that they they were going they 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 couldn't settle on a producer really, and they were also recording the Vintage Goon series at the same time, and so and that was just causing a bit of a strain, really. So Series Eight ends and Spike goes off to Australia, and he's yes, he's, and he records uh, the first series of the Idiot Weekly for radio. Yeah, have you heard any of those? I've heard uh, one of the surviving episodes, which oddly enough has a few gags that he then reworked into the Sahara Desert statue. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. Uh, so around this time as well, Peter's obviously doing a lot of filming. He, he's filming, uh, I think it, around this time, uh, Up the Creek comes out, the film Up the Creek. Yes, um, and, and Tom Thumb, which Tom, uh, Tom he, Thumb. Was, he was a co-villain with Terry Thomas. Terry Thomas, absolutely. Uh, he's filming in September. He's filming Carlton Brown of the FO. Uh, also with Terry Thomas. Yes. And then around the time that the ninth series begins, he's just begun shooting the mouse that roared at Shepperton, uh, which is, I think, his first, technically his first starring role. Or is it? I'm not quite sure. I think did um, did he get top billing on Carlton Brown? I'm not sure if he no, did. No, no. Carlton Brown was a, uh, was a Terry Thomas film with with Peter as a co-star. I think. Right. Sure. So I think Mouse at Rod is his first uh, name above the title, uh, and also his first multiple roles. Yes, I think it was the first one where they really made a. I don't know whether it was his first multiple role, but it was the first one where they made a point of that being one of the reasons to see it. Yeah, well, he, he played different characters in The Naked Truth, of course, but they were all essentially Sonny McGregor playing right. characters rather than him, rather than Sellers playing three distinct characters, if you like. Um, anyway, so Sellers, and, and also Sellers, of course, is has started appearing in Brouhaha on stage in late yes, August. The, the legendary stage play that would, its success would lead to his long-running stage career. <laughs> yes or not yeah or not. I think, I, I, he had he had high hopes for this he i don't know he obviously was keep mad keen to make films and to make it in hollywood i guess ultimately which he which he did did he also have these harbor these sort of ambitions to be uh, you know a big stage actor as well because he wanted to he hoped that brouhaha would transfer to broadway ultimately which it didn't <laughs> um it can be difficult the 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 actor who is on the stage needs to know that they are performing the same text every night sometimes multiple times a day and mm. i think that rankled on peter peter got very bored very fast yeah and it was it's kind of a, a bit like i suppose when spike was doing oblomov on stage yes and eventually just departed completely from the script. Um, and it became a huge success. Whereas Bruhaha, yeah, Salas felt very hemmed in and very restricted by having to perform the same material night after night. Um, it's famously the, I mean, we have discussed this previously, but it is the, it's the, the stage show that he was in, the, the one really that he was in, where he went to um, a party that Alec Guinness had thrown uh, I think Alec Guinness had just got his knighthood, perhaps. Was that it? I'm not sure. But he threw a party and Sellers went to the party and then turned up um, uh, three sheets to the wind for the evening performance of Bruhaha. And 
um, pretty much performed drunk. <laughs> uh, uh, he announced it to the audience at the beginning and got their consent for him to perform drunk. Don't get me wrong. And then I think he may have fallen off and fallen into the orchestra pit or something, not something like that. Um, so not a not a happy experience. And he'd also just recorded a 10 inch LP, the best of sellers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which uh, is a busy man in 1958. Very busy man. Uh, and um, and Harry was uh, Harry was obviously um, busy as well. He was doing his usual uh, variety appearances all over the country. And then he was starting large as life at the Palladium. Yes, which uh, that was a review which also featured coming up a lot in this uh, Terry Thomas, mm -hmm. as well as Eric Sykes, Adele Lee, Harry Worth, and Hattie Jakes. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the, I think that was basically sort of a uh, review where Harry was sort of the MC. Yeah, I think he was. And, and um, he was also due to be uh, appearing at the Royal Variety performance, um, actually on the day that um, the Sahara Desert statue aired was broadcast. And from Spike to a character who today has been rehearsing here and rehearsing at the Coliseum and the Coliseum for tomorrow night's command performance, Harry Seacombe. So leading up to the beginning of the ninth series, obviously the BBC wanted a ninth series. Um, Spike's in Australia. Spike's playing a little bit of hardball. I suppose so so the bbc make it make it known that they want a ninth series so spike writes to the bbc from australia and he has um a, a list of demands better sound effects for example um he wants more guests such as valentine dial to be um added and and dial for as, as we've mentioned before dial to perhaps be a fixture of the show from the ninth series on um, he also wants Peter Eaton back as producer after, you know, going through or using, what, three producers in Series 8? Yes. Charles Shilton, who did the uh, top and tail of the series, but then apparently just had to go somewhere for three months. Um, Roy Spear was ill, and Tom Ronald just didn't like the show. No, that's right. Yeah, um, I mean, he would have been happy, very happy, if um, Pat Dixon could have come back, but... but well, to be fair, Pat Dixon died in October 58 of cancer, sadly, only age 54. Um, yeah. Spike was very upset about that. And, and um, uh, I know he suggested that the BBC produce a tribute show to Pat Dixon with the um, fees donated to charity. I'm not sure if that actually went ahead or not. And Peter Eaton, anyway, he couldn't come back because he was working. He was a big producer on television, then working for Granada, Granada TV. So in the end, the BBC kind of compromised and they asked former Goon Show studio manager, John Browell, to take up the reins. And yes, he had, he had been the, uh, the, what was called, I think the panel um, studio manager um, for series three through five. Mm -hmm. That's right. So obviously Spike knew him. Um, uh, John Browell wrote to Spike in Australia and assured him that the you know, FX problem would be sorted out. Um, so I think Spike's main issue was that the, 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 the quality of the FX had kind of dipped in series eight in terms of just general overall quality and, uh, timings, I suppose. And so Brow assured him that, um, all the FX for the show would be rehearsed on the Thursday before the Sunday recordings so that they would be, um, uh, absolutely, you know, spot on. Um, and I think Spike was was mollified. I think Spike was pretty happy at John Brown's. Yeah, well, apartment. I think if you look at um, if you look at the effects in Series Nine and what they do with them, it's definitely a step up from mm. previous series. Yes, and of course, we've, well, because it's around this time. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the timings here, but it's around this time that the Radiophonic Workshop is set up, isn't it? Yes, and um, now I know that uh, they're famous for um, doing Bloodnock's stomach. Mm. as a sound effect but i think they did a, a number of others towards uh more towards i think the end of series nine i don't think they were quite involved at this point no 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 i think and they're involved in um shows like the scarlet capsule okay so we've got we've got john Brell uh, on on board as producer spikes also asking for more money 
Um, his reasoning is that, so Galton and Simpson are obviously writing Hancock's Half Hour. Both men are being paid for one script and their combined fee is clearly more than Spike is being paid. And Spike's argument, and you can kind of see his point, is that you know the, 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 a script for Hancock's Half Hour is being um, paid more for than a script for The Goon Show. Um, so he's he's asking for more money. Yep. Uh, he also suggests that um, perhaps the guys from Associated London Scripts could write some Goon Show scripts while he's on holiday in Australia. Um, so I'm, I'm guess by that he's just, he's insinuating that maybe Galton and Simpson could write some Goon Shows, which would be a fascinating prospect, wouldn't it? Well, I'd mentioned that there is an uh, there's an episode in series one of Hancock's Half Hour uh, where Sid sells Hancock a house that's at the bottom of a cliff and then another house at the top of a cliff because the bottom of the cliff is going to get flooded and then another house further back because the house at the top of the cliff is going to fall off. <laughs> that could easily have been a goon show just as, well, I've often said that um, the typical goon show plot, which I always say is Gritpipe and Moriarty show up and get Nettie to trick Nettie into doing something illegal. Yeah. And the problem with the typical goon show plot is that if you took Britpipe and Moriarty and made them Sid James and took uh, Nettie and made him Tony Hancock, not much would have to change. That's very true. It's very true. And obviously, well, Seacom stood in for Hancock and for three shows, didn't he, famously? He did. But I think if you try and put um, Tony Hancock into the Sahara Desert statue, you're not going to get very far. No. Plus, really. the Hancock's half hour at least has one foot in reality. True. Yeah. Um, so all these demands that Spike is making upon the BBC, they they kind of call us bluff, I suppose, and they they suggest that actually, okay, well, we're not going to we're not going to schedule a new series then. Um, and Spike backpedals quite rapidly, and his uh, I think it's Beryl Virtue steps in and says, "Oh no 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 no, don't worry. Um, uh, as long as there's some compromises, Spike's happy to write a new series." Okay. Yes. Um, so his fee is increased, and the BBC also, I guess they feel they have to, they increase Harry and Peter's fees as well for, the, for appearing on the Goon Show. And Presumab presumably cut a few more musicians in order to be able yeah. to afford it. Well, it, it, absolutely. And uh, notably, they decide actually we don't need Max Galdray anymore, which yes, I do. Well, yeah, I think it's. I think that's a terrible decision. So they decide that they're going to drop Galdre and just have um, one musical spot in, obviously, the Ray Ellington Quartet. Ray Ellington is becoming much more high, high profile in terms of on, be appearing on television. Uh, yes. I saw an episode of... So he, he turns up... I, I watched an episode of Alfred Mark's Time recently, which is from... Uh, the episode was from the third series in 58... And uh, Ray and the quartet appear on that. In fact, Ray semi appears in a sketch, actually. Yes, they're very beautiful, aren't they? Very beautiful pictures here. You just here, ladies and gentlemen, is a perfect example of the Renaissance period, you see? And here we have uh, a constable, because you can't recognize him, he's got his helmet off. <laughs> yes. And ladies and gentlemen, this one, of course, you all know, is the world famous Mona Lisa. Very, very beautiful. Yes, now, and this. That will be your favorite, ladies and gentlemen. The museum is closed. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, see you some other time. After you've gone and left me crying. After they've gone and left me crying. Um, by the way, Alfred Mark's time is pretty dreadful. <laughs> I'll, uh... I'll admit I, I don't know who Alfred Marx is. <laughs> right, okay. Alfred Marx was kind of in that friendship group with Sellers and Lodge and uh, um, what's his name? Stark. <laughs> people, like, Stark yes. people like Mauro Fabrizzi, um, Alfred Marx, you know, he was good friends with Sellers. I think he was at the, I think he appeared at the windmill. I think he was pretty friendly with all three of them, but particularly Sellers. And um, Sellers and he uh, would uh, do a lot, not professionally, but they, you know, they'd, they'd uh, socialize a lot in the fifties and 
Um, Marx was a, I don't want to say mediocre, but he was a, he was a pretty humdrum comic. He, he, he had one shtick, if you like. Um, he plays several characters in the episode of Alfred Marx's time that I watched, but they're all the same character, if, you, if that makes sense. <laughs> oh, yes. I've, I've watched 50s American television shows, and there are several that also fall into that. Yeah, and he, he, his name does get dropped into a few goon shows occasionally. Part one. Will the cast take up their positions on your Alfreds? Get set. Anyway, I'm getting off the getting off the point here. But so yeah, so the BBC decide to get rid of get rid of Geldre. Max, it seems, had anticipated that this might happen. So when he's informed of the decision in late September, he he kind of accepts it without much uh, argument, really. Now, Peter then finds out, Peter Sellers finds out about this, and Peter and Max are pretty tight, you know, they're, they're, they're very good friends. Yeah. Um, Peter threatens to pull out of the Goon Show, and, and, and Peter's agent writes to the BBC, uh, implying that Harry would also follow suit. So the BBC um, reversed the decision, and Max is kept on. Okay. Yes, he even he even gets more to do in series nine. They give him several lines. Oh, Hold everything, boy. I bring bad news, boy. Good. The genuine Diana Dawes cast of a wrestler. No, boy. I'm the town crier. Well, start crying then. <laughs> Listen, boy. Don't laugh at me. I don't get any extra money for doing these parts. Sound like a fair arrangement. <laughs> <laughs> the valley is flooded, boy. Echoes you water those flowers. And I'm wondering. Um, when the script for the Sahara Desert statue was actually written, because the first, what, five minutes of the show is completely unrelated to the, the, the plot. It's, it's I, just, just the guys riffing, really, isn't it? It is. It, um, it reminds me of, well, it reminds me of the music hall stuff that they're always uh, making fun of which I've always I've always quite liked because I was not constantly exposed to it in the 1950s like most of Britain was so I was not able to get tired of it. Mm. <laughs> but it's yeah it's basically just I, I mentioned that I don't think this is the funniest goon show but I think it might be the fastest goon show at least at the start where I think Spike might be trying to see how many gags he can work into five minutes and I think that's why it we get Max's number so early. It's very early in the Goon Show. Well, my theory is, and it's probably completely wrong, but my theory is, okay, if you if you look at it, Ray Allington's number comes in 16 minutes into the show. Okay. My theory is that, that the script was originally written with Galdray considered not part of it. So I'm wondering whether Spike wrote it thinking Galdray's not going to be in this. So Ray Allington's number comes smack bang, in the middle of the show okay and i'm wondering whether um galdray's kind of crowbarred in there uh, in the first after that sort of um uh, cross talk in the first five minutes could mm. be mm. that's my theory anyway and i'm uh, sticking to it um and um the other thing about series nine is that it's shorter than most of the previous well all of the previous series um, 17 shows. So 17 shows were originally agreed with the option for nine more, but then um, Harry couldn't commit to nine more because he was going away on holiday. And and also, as I said before, Peter Sellers thought that Bruhaha might actually transfer to New York. So in the end, there was there was just 17 shows. However, six episodes from the Vintage Goons series right. uh, were broadcast in the run up to the start of series nine. I've got them here. Which ones were they? So they, yeah, so it was Mummified Priest, Greatest Mountain in the World, The Giant Bombardin, The Vanishing Room, Great Bank of England Robbery, and The Albert Memorial. They were they were broadcast in the run-up to the beginning of Series 9. And there was also, I'm sure you've heard it, there was a, um, a special trailer recorded by Wallace Greenslade for yes. the Sahara Desert statue. Which uh, uses Henry and Min from, um, sort of flown in from some other from the Greenslade story, yes, it's yes, um, and then and then you've just got Wallace kind of. I mean, he's obviously reading from a script, but he's it's, it's he's kind of improvising, I suppose. He's put he's doing voices. 
Yes, he, he does his uh, his crun uh, and banister type voice. And we also get the um, the series eight catchphrase. It's all in the mind, you know, which um, pretty much started to vanish around series nine. I think they did it once or twice, but that was. I think that may have been a Larry thing and series nine. Well, this this. So the other thing we should mention is this is a solo spike script. Mm -hmm. uh, he had done uh, most of series seven and a chunk of series eight with Larry Stevens. But yeah. did they have another falling out? I don't have my copy of um, well, mine well, in front of me. As we know, I mean, Larry only had a few couple of months to live because this yeah. series nine begins in November and, and Larry's dead by end of January, 59. Yeah. Um, so maybe Larry just wasn't up to it, you know? Um, although I think his death was, I think he knew he was dying because his doctor had given him, he had, what did he have? He had extremely high blood pressure and he was, yeah. he was, he was keen on, uh, keen on the old bottle. Well, he did, he did write, um, I think he wrote a couple of them in series nine. The um, Sigun memoirs was, was him and Maurice Wiltshire. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not quite sure about that, but anyway. So the Sahara Desert statue, the, the first, so the recording of this had to be scheduled around Harry's rehearsals for the Royal Variety performance that we mentioned, um, uh, which, so, so the show was actually broadcast the same day as the Royal Variety performance. We have um, a recording of the warm-up and we hear them refer to Harry appearing. We also hear, um, very interestingly, um, Leo McKern, the actor Leo McKern is in the audience for this recording uh, because you can hear Spike saying, oh, Leo McKern's in the audience or something like that. And then I think it's Peter shouts out, hello, Leo. Leo McKern, Oh, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> Friend of Peter, uh, Leo. And, and Leo, of course, would uh, appear with them in uh, the running, jumping and standing still film. Yes. Wait, was he in the mouse that roared too? Oh, he was. Yes, he was. He was. Um... So if Peter was filming the mouse that roared, that may be another reason why oh, Leo was there. Of course. Absolutely. I'm sure Peter said maybe at the end of shooting on a I don't know, Friday or Saturday, you know, the day before this recording, maybe he extended an invitation to Leo. Um, that would make sense. Absolutely. It all it all fits into place when you start analyzing these shows. It, it's there, interesting. There's another there's another very interesting thing in that uh, rehearsal where you have Wallace Greenslade introducing everyone as always. And I've often wondered, uh, is all of that Wallace just improvising or does he uh, does he have like little bits of introduction given to him? Because at one point he introduces Ray Ellington as part of the Little Rock Nine. Mm. Now explain what the, that is. The Little Rock Nine were um, African-American students who were enrolled in, in high school in Arkansas. And they it was a segregated school and the governor had re refused to allow them entry. And Eisenhower had to intervene. And um, they were the first nine students to be enrolled and uh, de in desegregation starting. Yeah. Mm. So it was a timely reference, although I'm, I'm not sure it quite worked, but. Mm. Yeah, so apparently you can kind of hear it in his voice slightly, but apparently Peter had a cold during the, the day this was recorded. Yeah, the, the Gunica says he was under par. I, I don't I don't hear it as a performance issue, but yeah, you, you can sort of hear he might be congested. Mm. Mm. Um, and I wonder whether um, that was uh, he was uh, medicating with brandy because um, uh, the John Browell apparently had kind of unofficially given them approval to drink. Yeah, you were you were mentioning uh, Peter doing brouhaha while while drunk, and I, I suspect a couple of the later goon shows probably also fell into that category. Mm. <laughs> um, so if this was a Friends episode, this would be called the one with the nude Welshman holding a rice pudding, wouldn't it? It's, it's wonderful. It's such a terrific goon show plot. And the effect of an atom bomb dropped on a nude Welshman standing in the desert holding a rice pudding. You can imagine Spike being very happy with himself after he came up with that. 
one interesting thing uh, before we get away, or a couple interesting things before we get away from the variety stuff at the start. Um, Peter and Harry basically appear as themselves as they normally did at the, before the plot starts bit. And Spike does as well, but the script goes back and forth between between referring to him as Spike and referring to him as Jim Spriggs. Hmm. Hmm. And I think by this point, um, much as everyone said that Eccles was Spike's alter ego, Jim Spriggs had also become Spike's sort of writer alter ego. Yes. Um, And he frequently, when he had to appear as himself, so to speak, he would use the Spriggs voice maybe without the hello Jim, you know, type stuff, but that sort of adenoidally nasal thing. <laughs> yeah, he'd never, yes, you're right. He would never really be Eccles, would he? Doing those um, those bits at the beginning of these later period shows when he's essentially being himself. He'd never do the Eccles voice. Um, and Sellers would tend to do his own, well, not his own voice, but he would do a slightly officious sounding voice, wouldn't he, when he was, essentially yes, being himself. Yes, would sound, you know, a little overdone. Mm. And um, speaking, the other thing I wanted to mention is that right before Max's number, uh, Don't Take Your Love From Me, a classic from 1940, um, Harry does a celebrity impersonation, which is not something you normally hear. Normally the celebrity impersonations would be Peter's job. Yes. But uh, Harry is doing an impersonation of Carol Levis, who was a, uh, I guess, talent scout would be the um, Mm -hmm. phrase. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's actually Canadian, but he was an expat who went to Britain and was very popular in the 50s. I actually listened to a clip of him um, just actually right before this. And Harry obviously overdoes it, making him sound somewhat sloshed but he's not too far off in the impersonation carol levis had that sort of glad handing hi how are you type of thing mm, yeah a bit like um huey green who did opportunity knocks yes there were arthur godfrey we had in america who had his own uh big talent scout program in the 50s okay so so we have this cross talk there's a little bit of well they, they mentioned brouhaha don't they in in the show? And they yes. mention um, they mention the fact that Spike's been in Australia, and then we have, as we said, we have Galdray, and then we begin the plot proper. With the House of Commons is debating the, the fact that the British Atomic Commission don't know what effect an atom bomb would have on a new Welshman holding a rice pudding. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I have I have not seen too many you know, House of Commons debates, but I'm going to guess they usually aren't bathing during them. (laughs) Well, I guess the only sort of House of Commons debates from this period that you would have been exposed to would be Goon Show parodies. Yeah, uh, well, I'm familiar with the one that they uh, quoted um, in regards to the CD plates. Oh, yes. With the the piano going out the window. That's right. And also, and wasn't there... um... Uh, the Jet Propel Guide in Nephi, wasn't there um, a debate quoted yes. in that as well? That was directly quoted, and then they used that for the plot. Yeah. Uh, so basically, uh, the government thinks that Britain could take the lead. <laughs> Interesting and- that this this isn't Gridpipe and Moriarty thinking up something to sucker Nettie. This is the British government coming up with something that just happens to be a convenient plot to sucker Nettie that they sort of glom onto. <laughs> yeah, they, well, they possibly they... I think because at this point in their careers, Gritpipe and Moriarty can't come up with their own plans because they're too desperate and starving. <laughs> yeah, well, they've tried everything else, haven't they? By this point, um, so the, well, the government offered to pay what is it, two thousand pounds, to any Welshman who wants to uh, stand naked holding a rice pudding while hit by the power of an, an, uh, an atom bomb. And uh, obviously, Grip Pipe and Moriarty know the, the perfect person for this. One other thing I wanted to mention, uh, at one point, in speaking of the House of Commons member getting out of the bath, Grip Pipe says, you've woken Lord Tavener. Mm. And uh, Lord's Taverners is a charity that um, was around, and I think still is, Yeah. and was founded by, among others, John Snag. Yes, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Spike would definitely have been aware of it. And when looking for a Lord might have just happened to cross that so that he didn't have to 
mention an actual lord and have the BBC get annoyed with him again. Yeah. <laughs> I think the the standard comedy lord that would be quoted around this time was Lord Hailsham, who was an actual lord. I was going to say Lord Elpus. Oh, Lord Elpus. Um, yeah, Lord, El lord Hailsham was one of those real-life members of the House of Lords who would get quoted frequently in comedy shows in the 60s and into the 70s, I'm sure. I, I, I've got this mem this vague memory that the two Ronnies used to go on about Lord Helsham all the time. Anyway, that's that's, that's getting off the point. Um, so, so how does this show... I mean, Neddy agrees. He, yes, possibly because he's in dire straits as, as he and uh, William are essentially sharing a flat with uh, Bloodnock as their landlord, which, which amuses me because it makes no sense for the show. At this point, continuity just doesn't matter to Spike. He knows he's got Bloodnock later on as the commanding officer of a fort in Kenya, but Bloodnock shows up as their landlord simply for the sake of the gag. Bloodnock has to be the landlord. That's, that's how it works. <laughs> also, William cutting his toenails is one of my favorite bits. <laughs> It's so horrible. <laughs> William! What are you doing in there? Cutting me toenails, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's, William and Seagoon didn't often team up, I suppose, but they, they do appear together uh, in a show, um, recent show that we've covered, um, Treasure in the Lake, where they're busking, if you remember. Well, usually when Seekum is particularly destitute, William tends to be hanging out next to him. Mm. <laughs> so Seagoon goes to the desert, the Sahara Desert, and um, disrobes, I guess, and, and is holding a rice pudding. Um, there is, by the way, a, a cut bit here, which was in the original script, and for once was not um, part of the bits in the script that were picked up by Ted Kendall and inserted into the compendium later, where Spike cuts to a group of scientists who are trying to identify atomic explosions by their sound. And it's meant to be sort of a parody of wine tasting. You know, right. oh, that one definitely sounds like a, like a 54, you know, that sort of thing. Oh, so that was in the script, but it wasn't recorded or it was recorded, but just doesn't exist anymore. I'm not sure. The, the copy of the script that the Encyclopedia Gunicus has is Spike's, but it did not. Um, it did not have any of Spike's usual annotations. It was a clean, mostly clean copy. Mm. So we don't have the usual uh, bits showing us what was cut and what wasn't. We do see that in this particular script, almost everything was kept except for that scene. Right. Okay. Now we have to talk about Eccles. Can you can you describe the Eccles appearance? Eccles is marching uh, through the desert. Um, I guess playing sort of an oral piano, um, which basically amounts to him going, dum -de -dum -de -dum -de -dum -dum, you know, <laughs> it's a really extended gag, and it's the audience is loving it. It's probably one of my favorite Eccles entrances. Spike is also having trouble not corpsing while doing it. <laughs> to set the scene off, the scene is of course that Harry, well, Seagoon is standing there buck naked um, with a bowl of rice pudding and so this is when Eccles turns up. A ragged soldier clad in cement sacks playing an imaginary piano. He must be one of ours. Good morning. That sun's hot. Well, you shouldn't touch it. <laughs> well, it's touched you. 
Just then, I caught a glimpse of the label on his head. It said, Early English Idiot, circa 1899. Oh, I'm not a mile. Ow, ow. I'm not an idiot. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm, you ask me any question, I'll tell you I'm clever. Real clever. C-L-X-L-X-L-E. Pronounced. <laughs> they really, they really enjoyed using um, sped up voices towards the end of series eight and in this series. Mm. And it's a sign again of the BBC catching up to Spike and being able to actually provide him what he's asking for after so long. Yes. This is the thing. I think series nine is generally held up as being uh, one of the best series of, of the Goon Show. And um, it certainly is. And it, it's funny that I think on this podcast, we've covered, oh, I didn't check actually. I want to say maybe four. I think it's, yeah, four or five. This might be five. Yeah, and there's there's still a couple that I I'm I I mean when I was looking at it, it was like oh Ned's atomic dustbin I'm surprised he hasn't done that one yet and there's a couple of others where they're obvious ones and it's because the series is such a high point that you just want to talk about all of them. Yeah. So um, now the number eight touring company of the Desert Song comes up in this show. Well, first of all. Um, Ray Ellington performs When I Grow Too Old to Dream, which is a song written by Sigmund Romberg and Oscar Hammerstein. Okay. And of course, they also wrote uh, The Desert Song, which was an oh, operetta. Okay. Uh, very popular with community light opera groups that, um, you know, the, not necessarily touring companies, so to speak, but popular with, you know, the town people who always wanted to be actors but never quite were would get together and they would put on a show type of thing yeah we would call that sort of amateur dramatic societies yes very yeah. popular with um and of course it was desert song was very very popular in the 30s and 40s and probably did have a lot of touring companies i don't spike had apparently referenced the long lost number eight touring company of the desert song before this, I remember an anecdote. I think it was by um, Norma Farns or somebody like that. And talking about, uh, he was like in a car and was drunk or something and was talking about the long lost number eight touring company of the Desert Song. So it's, it's again, like the nude Welshman holding a rice pudding. It's an idea that appealed to him. Yes. <laughs> and they actually, um, we get a, uh, of chorus of the riffs uh heard which is from that and um peter and spike doing sort of what henry and minnie would be like if they were theatrical actors ah oh, my dear look at the peaceful scene let us rest here in the shade of this grasshopper's leg oh the inspiration I feel a song coming on, my dear, because a blue. So this obviously went out on the home service uh, first of all, and then it was, it was repeated on the light program. And um, but the word buttock was removed from the light program broadcast. Uh, it just felt that was a little bit too near the knuckle or, or near the buttock. Maybe. Um, well, Spike is trying to get away with more and more. I mean, at this point, Bloodnock's entrances are almost always, shall we say, digestion specific. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever tire of that? I mean, it, it, it's it, most, I think, most people coming to the Goon Show as we do today, not as much because we're not hearing it in a row. Um, when, I mean, when you got, when you got goon shows in the late nineties, early two thousands, you got four goon shows and you got like one from series six, one from series seven of vintage goons and a series nine. Mm. So you had all sorts of different blood knocks. Whereas if, um, when you listen to the compendium and, uh, you're hearing things like, you know, uh, grit pipes, um, silly twisted boy over the course of 26 episodes and you realize what they're doing. To that point, yeah, I think that 
blood knox uh digestion could get a bit i i, I suppose it depends how much you like fart jokes <laughs> yeah which i don't <laughs> anyway um that's my issue uh so yeah i've kind of i've kind of lost here in terms of where we are blue bottle turns uh, yes, up yes we have Seekum playing a different part I, I like that blood knock says curse these small budget shows because we've just been talking about all of the uh budgetary issues before this season started we're, we're in blood knocks fort at this point because i uh after uh, Gridpipe and moriarty put him together and discover that he is a uh turned into more than one person we cut immediately to um kenya mm-hmm. where we get blood knock and we get um harry who, who as blood knock points out is playing a different part yes presumably that is for the audience so that they because you know harry sounds like harry no matter what he plays <laughs> <laughs> is this where the, this is where Bowser comes in, isn't it? Bowser is interesting because he's not called Bowser in the script. All right. In the script, he's called Bentine. Oh. And okay. in fact, um, in one of the bits that was put back in uh, for the compendium, uh, Bloodnock says, "Poor man, son of a Peruvian prince. Here, eat this leg of a chicken." So it was definitely meant to be Bentine in this case. Oh, so that character that that we know as Bowser, who pops up now and again, is he? I'm not. I'm not sure if he's meant to be a a character that Bentine once did. Um, because I know, um, in the very early Goon shows that no longer exist, when uh they had a Blood Knock segment, usually Bentine was his second in command. Mm, okay. So it could stem from that. It could also just be Spike deciding he wanted to parody Mike Benteen. I don't know. Maybe he ran into him the other day. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure this was not, I know this wasn't the case, but it would be nice to think that um, that uh, Spike had intended for Mike to come back for a little guest spot just for this that show. That would be interesting. I, I Well, I, I don't think it, I don't think that's the case, but it would have been quite something. Would have been nice, wouldn't thinking about that. It would have been nice around this time for Mike Benteen to have appeared in one show, just just turned up, you know, unannounced as Osric Pureheart, maybe just just for one, even one for one scene. That would have been that would have been lovely, wouldn't it? Yeah, we have Blue Bottle um, doing what he often did, which is basically just being random guard slash soldier. And we get one of my one of my favorite uh, Blue Bottle intros after he gets his applause. Of, which is partly the audience and partly scripted ovations with for he's a jolly good fellow spike is really milking the uh the blue bottle entrance at this point mm. mm-hmm. and um he says over the summer halls he started to grow hairs on his little legs <laughs> and just the way peter says nature is preparing me for marriage always yeah. makes me crack up <laughs> um there's a lot of gags here that I think were sort of in their repertoire for um, variety shtick, such as um, hit me like that and see what happens. And they hit him again. See what happened? Mm-hmm. Or um, red bladder, you can't frighten me. Pistol shots. Oh, he frightened me. Yeah. This is also um, starting with series nine and moving into series 10 uh, is where we start to hear what. Um, 12 years from now or 14 years from now spike will eventually start mining gags from these series for the last goon show of all Mm. which is uh very much filled with things he had written before and um we get that a little bit here with and i will mostly gloss over it for obvious reasons but harry playing an african chief uh basically spouting gibberish and we get the uh, tell him we can't understand what he's saying, war gibberish. And then Spike says he doesn't understand what he's saying either. Yes. Yeah. Which I think honestly works better with little Jim, frankly. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, so all we need to know really is that the, the Atomic Commission have concluded that when a nude Welshman holding a rice pudding is struck by an atom bomb, he turns into the number eight touring company of the Desert Song. And and they set up production facilities to produce. Yes, which of course actually do produce many number eight touring companies. The Desert Song, which again 
Goon Logic. The show ends, um, and th this only lasted uh, for this show and um, the show after it. I was Monty's treble. Essentially, they don't do the play out until after Greenslade's announcement. And he basically tells everyone, we're done, go home. And you hear the sound of the audience filing out, which I assume was pre-recorded rather than the actual audience filing out. Mm. And it really doesn't work at all. You you can hear why after two episodes they went back to doing the play out mm -hmm. with Greenslade. It, 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 I can sort of see they wanted to try and do something different, but it just... You're waiting for something to happen, and it doesn't until Ding Dong the Witch is Dead comes in. I expect you're surprised, but that was the goon show. In real life, they are disguised as Wally Stott's orchestra, the Ray Ellington Quartet, Max Geldray, Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers, and Spike Milligan, who also writes the thing. The only unreal persons in this recording were Wallace Greenslade, announcer, and the producer, John Brough, who prefers to be called... The <laughs> Well, it, it was very, it's very hard to time that sort of thing, particularly if you're live. And um, I, I mean, Spike had been and would in Series 9 playing with um, the lack of ending. Mm. Um, he did that in Series 8, usually with the it's all in the mind catchphrase. But with Series 9, uh, it, frequently the shows would just come to a stop. I think um, the one which ends with them filing back, firing back a, an empty plate where it just has Blood Knock saying, well, that's it. I don't know. Where are the payoffs of yesteryear? And then the orchestra comes in. Mm, mm, it's mm. basically Spike admitting, um, I came up with a fantastic idea. It doesn't have to have a finisher. There doesn't need to be a punchline, which, of course, he would use uh, for Q. And uh, Monty Python would also run with when they realized that that's what he was trying to do. Well, the Pythons, you know, listening to the Goon Show in the fifties, Palin and Cleese, you know, they must have, you know, they they'd have been they would have been exposed. Yes, to, to and this. they um, famously watched uh, Q when they yeah. were getting ready to do Python, and then when he's he's doing what we're supposed to be doing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But no, in overall, a, a very enjoyable show, very funny show. Would you use it as an introduction to a you know to, to I introduce? I have before. I have before, um, usually to people I know that like um, sort of louder, more slam bang type of comedy because the, the intro very much appeals to that sort of thing, the in introductory five minutes. Or um, I've also used it when I'm trying to describe, and yet, yes, I do introduce people to goon shows like this because I am a giant nerd. When I'm trying to describe the decline and fall of Moriarty, Mm. Um, usually I use something like batter pudding hurler for early Moriarty yep. and this, uh, for late period Moriarty, because Moriarty is really grotesquely awful in this show. <laughs> there's, there's one point we skipped over it where Gritpipe is doing a speech to Nettie and at some point he just stops and says, Moriarty, don't do that, please. <laughs> And there's no there's no indication of what Moriarty is doing at that point. <laughs> no, Moriarty is the is the character in the Goon Show who I was going to say develops, but he doesn't really develop, does he? he evolves. <laughs> it's, it's, Moriarty is a Devo song in action. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, as I say, but it is an enjoyable show. It, it it begins series nine, which more or less you know is considered a classic. It's a it's a it's a triumph. Um, I don't know what else to say really. Yeah, uh, I as I said, I love talking about this show. Um, I thought I'd I thought I'd get it out there because I didn't want to see other people talk about it when I'm like I have so many things to say about this show. <laughs> well, you're going to come back at some point, I'm sure, to talk about six yeah. six Charlies. Uh, and well, I had actually, um, because I, you have guests on doing all sorts of things, you know, Peter Sellers films and, you know, uh, the career of Mike Benteen and that sort of thing. And I thought, I don't, I don't want to get pigeonholed into just doing goon shows. And so I thought of looking into a, um, cause I'm also a big, um, fan is the wrong word. I study Watergate a lot, uh, the Nixon scandal. Yeah. And, um, 
when I got my Encyclopedia Gunicus, it came with a low-level uh, recording, uh, low-quality recording of He's Innocent of Watergate, which was an LP yes. that um, Peter and Spike had made in 1974. And I thought, ooh, that sounds interesting. I bet I could talk about that. And then I listened to it. Yeah, it's not very good. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> I think it may be the worst thing they did in 1973 and 74. And Ooh. as you can imagine, Ooh. that has some tough competition. It does. <laughs> yeah, Ghost in the Noonday Sun. Just on um, Watergate, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, brother. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of that sort of period. I love All the President's Men, one of my favorite films ever. When I was... Um two or three years old or three or four years old um the book had just come out and my mother had a copy of it in our upstairs half bath and so when i was when i was getting up in the middle of the night i would um because i was teaching myself to read i would be reading all the president's men the way that some people read dick and jane <laughs> which probably explains a lot about my personality oh well very happy for you to, to 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 come come back and talk about as i say six charlies or if you want to talk about a film or anything else really it's it's entirely up to you sean so have a think about it yeah and i um you can uh if you want to hear more of me uh find me on uh twitter yes at tokochan t-o-u-k-o-c-h-a-n though be advised that um if you follow me in general, you may find me talking less about uh, 50s British radio comedy and more about um, <laughs> illegal golf mafia anime shows. <laughs> so uh, a better idea might be uh, following hashtag goon show, one word. Just going to say, you've, you've reminded me, I'm so sorry, you've had to remind me of this. You have been doing some sterling work on Twitter in terms of um, examining goon shows in chronological order yeah they're sort of uh trivia threads uh i started it with um with series five more because i wanted to focus on uh the Geldre and ellington numbers mm. and examine where they came from and how recent they were because if you listen to the goon shows in order you'll, you'll notice how much contemporary pop ray ellington is putting into it where you get you know, a, a single had just come out and two months later, Ray was performing it on The Goon Show. Yeah. And it eventually sort of, uh, as I, you know, started looking at it via the Encyclopedia Gunicus, which uh, can be found by becoming a member of the Goon Show Preservation Society. Get in, get in the plug there. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, it sort of became more of a trivia thread showing off, uh, you know, deviations or developments in character, bits that were cut references that nobody gets and um whether it got a uh, transcription services edition or whether it got a pick of the goons edition mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun and i've had um some good responses to it i usually uh when i get to one that um has had a goon pod done by you i always try and tag you in it you do which i'm very grateful for thank you very much yeah so, so absolutely check out check out check out those and um and as Sean said, uh, join the Goon Show Preservation Society and then you get access. You have to stump up a few quid, but um, it's very reasonable for what you get. The uh, Encyclopedia Goonicus, which has just got everything on it. It's got scripts. It's got. Yeah. Any, anybody who you you look at it and you're like, wow, this is a lot. Yes. I still haven't gone through all of it. No, it, it has been invaluable for for purposes of this podcast. Really has been because for the first I didn't get it for. um I was waiting to get the new edition and then I, I various reasons I didn't get it straight away. Um, so the first, probably the first year of this show has, has been kind of, kind of flying blind almost, if you know what I mean? The Encyclopedia Gunicus, Gunicus has been invaluable for research purposes uh, when, when talking about goon shows more, yes. more, more usually. And by the way, I, I, I have mentioned it previously, the um, Goon Show Preservation Society, there is a, Duncan Gray is uh, working on a new website. Um, which I think is is long overdue. Hope they don't mind me saying. Um, no, I 100% agree. Yeah, and uh, that I think that may well have launched by the time this show goes out. So fantastic! Check that out. And um, yeah, Sean, thank you once again. And you and I will be speaking again towards the end of the year. I think talking about uh, listeners' top 20 goon shows. Um, Excellent! Can't wait to hear what they are. Suspect I'll be hearing about Napoleon's piano. Just, just an idea. <laughs> 
Yeah. If anyone wants to email me uh, any comments or any uh, you know, favorite shows, goon show episodes for the for the top 20 list, my email address is tyler.adams1974 at gmail.com. Um, or as I say, you can DM me on, on the Twitter uh, or on the Facebook group. So please check that out. Um, another plea is uh, please, if people could rate and review on uh is it still called itunes i don't know if it is is it now apple podcasts i get confused apple podcasts yeah. um yeah spotify yeah if all those places if you could please rate and review and all the rest um the show is is building up a really uh strong head of steam and lots of new uh listeners um particularly recent show we did on um the beatles and the goons that has gone down extremely well and that was an a, excellent show oh thank you very much picked up a load of new listeners off the back of that so uh, welcome to all them i think that's pretty much all the housekeeping now so sean um thank you once again and we will speak again soon yes thank you very much tyler it's wonderful to be on the show